I don't think this is like we're having full conversations here, but I think like a few like words where you can actually to be able to talk to dogs. Yeah, yeah. I'd much work. rather talk Got to it. dogs than humans. Sorry, sorry. I love talking to both oh, of you. Most of our listeners are dogs, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, it's great. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone as confused by the latest health study as I am by how it is that Saudi Arabia beat Argentina in the World Cup today. Okay, so people are not going to be hearing this for a while. So just know this was the day that Saudi Arabia beat Argentina. Did you all watch? It was pretty intense. I saw just the, the last few minutes and my husband and sons were like going nuts. Wow. Yeah. I didn't watch it. No. Oh, I was, I was up at, at six to watch that one and it was unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. So, but Argentina's not out. They're still in. No, no. We're That's still the in the thing group stage. With the World Cup. It's yeah. like, you, you don't lose. It's not like, you know, you yeah, don't like, yeah, lose yeah. totally. I don't know. It's a little confusing. For well, the in, in the group yeah. stage, you don't. So yeah. you got to play three matches uh-huh. and then two teams move on per group. But I, so I was looking this up. I didn't realize there have only been eight teams that have ever won the World Cup. Because it's every four years. It's only been going Uh since 1930. So there's only so many of them. And all of them are from Europe, five of them, or South America, three of them. So Uruguay, uh, Argentina, Brazil. And then in Europe, it was it's Italy, France, Germany, Spain, and England. Wow. Hmm. For some reason, I thought there was a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. You would think, right? Well, anyway. I have I have my hopes. Is, 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 is the U.S. This is the year the U.S. wins. <laughs> it's not looking good at least now. But, well, but they won. Uh, I think they won a game. No, they, they didn't. They tied. They, tied. they lost in the well. They they lost the lead in the 80th minute on a on a penalty kick. I didn't realize you were a soccer fan, Matt. I thought big yeah. time, big time, big time. Well, wow. you, you you like to talk about scoring. We've talked about the scoring. In I tennis. do have issues is, with yeah. scoring. I, I, I good topic for you. really hate penalty kicks deciding mm-hmm. a, a yeah. match. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. generally it's not a high scoring, although uh, England beat, who was it, yesterday, 6-2 to two, or the day before. But, oh no, it was yesterday. But anyway. Okay, uh, yeah. yeah. We could turn this into a sports podcast, but I don't think we should. So, updated <laughs> sports stats. Updated, yeah, because you know what people love is to listen to a sports podcast about something that happened weeks ago. Yeah, so I mean, not to like belabor it more with sports podcasts. You know, I have this platform here. I was in a bracket with Matt and uh, NCA bracket. Okay, okay. And I happened to um, beat Matt in the bracket pretty handily. I wasn't going to mention it today, but I decided to, to mention it now. Okay, so that's the end of our podcast Uh, yeah so every year we do an NCAA final four bracket and I recruit people to put in a bracket and I say every year to people you should you should do this it's fun and don't worry the people who know the most about basketball do the worst and I say that because I know a lot about basketball. And I <laughs> one year I finished third. That's the best I've ever done. Wow. Usually I finish in the bottom quarter. Is this so. an epi department thing? No, no. Oh, no. Okay. Anyone, okay. anyone who wants to join next year? Are you in? Epidemiology. <laughs> I know very little. There so you go. Maybe. There's a reason win. Win. Gonna win, Rocket to the top. Yeah. I usually get beat by somebody who uh, picks based on the school colors mm-hmm. yeah, or mascots. the school solid mascots approach. or something solid like that. Approach, I usually yeah. lose to those people. So anyway. anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. I am joined once again by 
by my co-host, Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Epidemiology here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. And that voice you've heard who is now on probation and may not be allowed to continue is our guest, Dr. Leo Martinez from the Department of Epidemiology at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Leo. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Also, a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. BU's hub for lifelong learning, where you can find all kinds of amazing public health tools. And now we are in the midst of enrolling people for our Winter Institute coming up in January, where you can take interesting courses such as Intro to ArcGIS. So, so sign up now. Before we go on to the show, there's one thing. I We have a new review. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Do you want to hear it? Sure. It's a, it's a five-star review. It says... Wow. As an epi professor myself, I'm in love with free associations, the perfect blend of engaging stories, nerd humor, G-N, nerd humor. How do you say that? G-N-U, nerd? Nerd? <laughs> nerd with a G? Yeah. G-N-U-R-R-E-D. I never heard that. Is that a word? I don't know. Nick, can you, can you adjudicate? All right. Anyway, well, I'm going to say nerd. Person sounds very humor, intellectual. And clearly... Explained insights into the practice of epi research. I've been filling my hour-long commute with these podcasts and weekends too, feeling blessed by the deep backlog to draw from. That is from Bill Jesdale in via Apple Podcasts. So mm. that's was back in September. I'd forgotten about it. So thank you very much, Bill. Okay, so now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're gonna look at a study on RSV, respiratory syncytial virus in the UK. And you've probably been hearing a lot about this because it's been a very bad RSV season. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we will talk about the value of evidence in preprints or maybe not the value of evidence, but do the does do the preprints hold up when they get to published form? And then a third segment is our amazing and amusing. We'll get into things that make us laugh out loud or just found really interesting. So Segment one. So we're we're talking about an article that looked at epidemiology of RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, in the UK during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was published in Lancet Infectious Diseases and was entitled Epidemiology of Respiratory Syncytial Virus in Children Younger Than Five Years in England During the COVID-19 Pandemic Measured by Laboratory, Clinical, and Syndromic Surveillance, a Retrospective Observational Study. That is a mouthful. That's a long title. <laughs> so, Jess, can you uh, talk us through this study? I can. This was a really interesting one, and thanks to Leo for bringing it to our attention. As Matt was alluding to, there's been a lot of discussion lately about trends in RSV, given the terrible fall and winter season we're having right now in the fall of 2022 with RSV in young kids. But these authors basically sought to quantify and describe the changes that happened in RSV epidemiology during the pandemic to date from a pre-pandemic period and kind of compare these epidemiologic experiences with RSV to historical trends. So as we know, RSV is a respiratory pathogen just by means of background that typically infects nearly all children before the age of two years old and is often quite mild, but can be severe in some children, especially very young children and those with a pre-existing respiratory or immunological condition. Um, and it's the second leading cause of mortality, actually, which I was unaware of for children younger than five globally, second only to malaria. Yeah, I think a lot of people 
people are not aware of RSV, but it is, yeah. it's it, those who study respiratory pathogens are very familiar with it. Yeah. So I was, I only became aware of RSV personally in the last year because my two-year-old had a very serious case mm-hmm. and was hospitalized. Sorry, so yeah. I, I read this, I read this paper with a lot of personal interest as well. So RSV is a notable cause of hospitalizations, emergency department visits, pediatrician visits, and morbidity among very young children in particular. So what these investigators were doing is they were looking at the epidemiology of RSV in England, specifically from 2014 through the spring of 2022. So right now we're in the fall winter of 2022. So the time period of this study is not including, just to note, our current RSV season, but kind of ending in the spring of 2022. And they were looking to consider how the COVID-related interventions, such as lockdown, school closure, working from home, et cetera, affected RSV incidents during this time period. They conducted a retrospective study using a series of secondary data sources that we'll talk through in a minute, where they were drawing outcome RSV outcome data from three key sources. The first being laboratory data. So these this was confirmed RSV cases, plus also looking at the number of RSV tests that were conducted. They looked at clinical data on hospital admissions for confirmed RSV, and also for respiratory diagnoses like pneumonia or bronchitis that are not unique to RSV, but are common causes of RSV-associated hospitalization. So those were the first two sources of data. Their third data source, more syndromic surveillance systems in England, including things like calls to the remote NHS remote health advice phone line run by nurses through the NHS, primary care consultations, and hospital emergency department attendance. The study population consisted of children younger than five years old who were identified through public health surveillance systems as having confirmed RSV infections, an RSV test, or an RSV-associated respiratory disease. And what the investigators did is they analyzed weekly counts of RSV, the first thing they did, weekly counts across the study years, which ran from 2014 to the spring of 2022, specifically looking at percent change in the winter season and the summer season, as RSV is generally seasonal, with outbreaks typically in winter and very low periods in the summer. They compared data during COVID, so from the spring of 2020 through spring of 2022, with the mean disease burden in prior years starting in 2014. They then used an interrupted time series approach and a generalized linear modeling approach to evaluate the effect of COVID interventions that were taking place during the COVID period on each of their surveillance indicator data points. So the intervention period was March 2020 to the end of the study period in the spring of 2022. And they estimated the trend of each of these three surveillance indicators, laboratory data, clinical data, syndromic surveillance, trained on hospital data prior to the pandemic. And they compared actuals, actual data from the pre-pandemic period and the post-pandemic period to try to provide this counterfactual estimation of activity that would have occurred had the pandemic not occurred when it did, specifically looking at seasonal trends during the winter of 2020, which was the first winter of the pandemic, the summer of 2021, which was the second summer of the pandemic, and then the winter 2021-22 season. So it was a little bit of a complicated study design, but a lot to dig into for there for, you know, on that. So their results was that they observed, as was kind of evident observationally, a dramatic reduction in case burden, clinical data and syndromic data in the winter of 2020 
2021 when schools were closed and many people were working from home and there were periods of lockdown. They found a greater than 99% reduction in number of cases, 81% reduction in total hospital admissions for RSV attributable disease, and 74 to 90% reduction in syndromic measures compared to their counterfactual estimates from prior years. So that was in the winter, the first winter of the pandemic. What they interestingly found on the flip side was a dramatic increase in cases in the summer. So this was a 1,200% increase in case burden in the summer of 2021 with increases for syndromic surveillance as well. So that was when kids were back in school often, even in with, with some interventions and people could be back at work. What they didn't see during the pandemic were these typical seasonal patterns that typically happen for RSV with the peaks in winter and the declines or valleys in the summer. And this would have been typical for RSV, but they did not see the same pattern during the pandemic. They saw an unusual, unexpected peak in the summer. In the next winter, winter of 2021 to 22, they saw also decreased case burden and burden of other measures of endpoints, including a 43% reduction in RSV hospital admission and other reductions across most other indicators, and a 27% reduction in case burden compared to their estimated counterfactual of prior years. So the conclusions of these authors was that there was an unprecedented reduction in RSV in the 20 to 21 winter, followed by an unusual uptick in the summer of 2021. And disease was reduced again the following winter, the 2021-22 winter, but not as much as it was in that first winter. And the authors note that while reduced disease is a good thing, these findings need to be contextualized in the discussion of the immunity debt theory, thinking about what does this mean for children who might have had a delayed exposure to RSV. Yeah, and I think we'll, we will have to explain what immunity debt is when we get to it, but I, it is something that has been talked about immensely in in the circles, certainly that we run in. Leo, what do we make of this study? Is this a, is this a good study, and, and should we take these results as indic- indicative of a problem? Yeah, I thought I thought it was a really interesting study. I thought uh, there was a lot of data, a lot of different sources of data, you know, and I think that in a sense helps with some of these arguments and helps them understand and, and maybe support some of the arguments, but also is complicated to actually understand what all these different sources of data really mean, you know, and if they actually are measuring similar sorts of trends or if they're they're just measuring different things entirely. But I guess to, to zoom out, I thought it was a good study. I thought it was really interesting and obviously really topical. I think there are a, a lot of questions that came in. I mm-hmm. think when you're working with surveillance data, I, I immediately come up with a lot of questions. And so I can I can start talking about some of those. I, I think one question that I that that came up was about some of the trends and how maybe I, I think what they wanted to do is use these different sources of data and and they came from different places as a way of helping support their overall argument. They, they were saying, you know, look at this one source of data. Maybe this is biased in this way, but but all of our data is sort of pointing in this direction. So you can't actually hit me here in a mm-hmm. sense. But, but I did think their different sources of data were actually not completely congruent in a lot of ways. So like, for example, total RSV cases went down 99% in winter 2020 and then up 1200% in summer 2020 mm-hmm. and then went down again. But if you look at hospital admissions for RSV attributable illness 
it went down, but and there was a slight increase after that, but it was pretty small, 10% increase in summer of 2021 compared to 1,200% increase in total RSV cases. So I felt like sometimes I would have expected more hospital admissions for RSV attributable illness if we're seeing 1,200% increase in total RSV cases, in a sense, if that makes sense. It does. So I I reacted to this. I mean, one thing that I thought was probably important to, um, to say about this study is that, as you say, I mean, there are a ton of results here and they are, they've got, you know, figures that range, you know, have panels of A through F because they're presenting cases and positivity rates and admissions and calls to, you know, the services and GP and et cetera, et cetera. So you've got a lot of information to try and synthesize. Therefore, I don't think, at least this is my opinion, that it makes a lot of sense to focus too much on the actual percent changes partly because the percent change is a function of the baseline. So as you say, there's there was like a whatever percent decrease in one one period and then a thousand percent increase. Well, a thousand percent increase sounds pretty horrible. Um, and it is, it is bad, don't get me wrong, but you know, a thousand percent increase off of a, you know a time period when there was expected to be no cases of RSV really just tells you there was RSV circulating at a time period when we wouldn't have expected. If you compare the overall, so if you just look at cases, right? RSV is has been very predictable. I mean, it happens, we yeah. have a winter season. It can be a bad season or a, you know, a not so bad season, but it always happens at the same time until COVID comes along. And then you have this shift where there's nothing happening during the pandemic early period. And then at the end, towards the end, towards more recent times, you see this massive uptick and it's sustained longer than the period at which you would, during the time period you would would expect. And so, you know, is the net overall number of cases more than it was previously? It, it looks to me like it, it, you know, if you put two seasons together, it's still probably a bit more than what you would expect over two seasons. On the other hand, I think your point is valid, Video, which is that, you know, the case numbers probably aren't the most reliable source of data because, you know, once people start as we say, we we study our we study infectious disease, we study epidemiology, and yet, Jess, you said RSV was not something that was on your radar. It is on people's radar now, and so the idea that cases are you know, you're getting more reports of cases now than you were before could, in part, be driven by the fact that more people are just getting tested for RSV and. There's so much circulating that doctors, when kids are coming in, are testing for it more than they would usually. So that could be part of it. But I think hospital admissions, you know, to me, that's probably a pretty good indicator. I mean, yes, admissions can be misclassified as to what the admission is actually for. Could be, you know, influenza, things like that. But, you know, to me, it's generally a a pretty good indicator. I think the context here, I agree with you. And I think the context here is really important. And so in thinking about I think the testing is a really big difference in terms of what was happening during the pandemic from previous to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That RSV typically is a mild disease in most children and might not have even before the pandemic been something that phased many parents. It might have just been a sniffle in their preschooler or in their toddler and not something they would have gone to the doctor for. But in the environment of COVID, where everyone is tested yeah. for COVID for every sniffle, mm-hmm. at my pediatrician's office, there is a, a three-part swab. It swabs for COVID, wow. RSV, yeah. and influenza. 
And I think a lot of pediatricians are using this. And so now there are these combined analyses, assessments, where you're kind of getting RSV along with the COVID swab. And I assume that that was a lot was what was happening here, that the testing burden just went way up. And so the number of cases skyrocketed in that summer, but not the severity. The severity didn't go along Mm -hmm. with it. We were just picking up a lot of kids who had RSV, who we, the timing was off, right? I mean, they probably would have gotten it in the fall, but it's possible that those cases would have gone undetected before the pandemic. So does that suggest that that goes against this argument of an immunity debt then, that it's more an argument? Can you explain what the immunity debt is? Because I think that's a term that not everyone will be familiar with. Yeah, it's, and the authors use this, and actually the editorial uses this too, is potentially a lot of children were not being exposed to RSV or were not developing RSV. And so they were, the argument goes that they didn't build up immunity to it um, later on. And this potentially led to when they were exposed in the summer of 2021, not being immunologically prepared, basically. And so that's where immunity debt comes. And potentially that's the reason why there was such a high increase of RS, total RSV cases in the summer 2021, at least that's the argument. And, and I mean, you're certainly seeing, though, a lot of kids, you know, kids who had to get hospitalized for RSV are under one year old, in which yeah. case those kids would not actually have been born right. in that previous year. So that would be, you know, partly an argument against the immunity debt theory. On the other hand, you could also say, you know, where do, you know, six month old babies get immunity to RSV from? They get it from their, Your from their mothers. Yeah from the antibodies that the mother is passing on. And if the mother is not exposed, then maybe she's not producing as much antibodies right. to pass on. So it, it could go either way. I, I don't know what to make of the theory. I just, it, it, it strikes me as, you know, possible, but I have no way to, to, to know. Yeah. I, I mean, if testing is increasing, that would indicate some sort of healthcare increased testing is causing these fluctuations in RSV rather than necessarily some sort of immunological reason, but I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. I think that's, that's one thing that I sort of struggled with this paper was actually sometimes the data, the amount of data I struggled with, but also I think potentially the authors were a little quick to, to go to, this is the cause of, of these sorts of trends where I was a little more, we don't really know. And maybe that's like my Epi hat, right? just not <laughs> so, wanting to you, agree. Epi skepticism. Yeah. yeah, I think they were jumping on the immunity debt theory, which I agree makes total sense. Is totally logical that if schools are closed, kids are not getting exposed to other kids, and so they're not getting sick. And it wasn't just RSV where we saw yeah. this dramatic. You know, kids didn't get sick at all for a long time when they were not in school. You know, preschoolers and kids in daycare particularly. And so it makes total sense that when they'd be all back together, they'd all get sick again. And that's, and that's in fact what has happened. And so that kind of delay to the exposure seems to make a lot of sense. I think the, the challenge I have is what is the baseline the same? Because we, maybe we don't have an accurate picture of baseline in the absence of all the tests, you know, with this huge increase in testing for RSV, maybe our understanding of the baseline case burden, I think the severity burden could be pretty well estimated by hospitalizations for RSV. So that seems to me to be the more logical endpoint is the severity endpoint rather than the case burden endpoint. I would agree with that. I mean, and when I look at the case numbers, all I'm really interested in is the trend, right? The the fact that there, you know, there's, there's this very predictable overlap in weeks, whatever, 38 or something through, you know, week four of the next year. Like you just see this 
massive shoot up and then drop down. And you see that year after year after year until beginning of COVID, there's nothing. And then the year, you know, second year, you see this shift in the cases. So to me, the actual values of those, who knows what to make of it? Because as you say, there's probably not a good baseline and there's probably way more testing going on now. On the other hand, the trend has clearly changed. Like there's clearly a shift in the timing. So I'd be curious then. So why, if, if, if it's an issue of immunity, immunity debt, as it's called, these, you know, these kids are largely naive to RSV, but everybody was largely naive to, to COVID-19. And we still continued to see, you know, rise and fall in cases in COVID-19 over the same time period. So why is that? Is it that kids are really were much more protected by virtue of being home, whereas adults actually still had to, you know, many people still had to go and work during the pandemic. And even those who maybe were working from home were still going to the grocery store and things like that. Does it have to do with the transmissibility of these two different things? Why, why did we see no RSV at a time period when we were seeing lots of COVID? Were we seeing at this time, was the seasonal pattern in flu also, also changed. Yes. So, so we were still seeing the seasonal pattern in flu, but maybe no, 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 no. Flu was also flu interrupted. Was also we had, like we had very little yeah. flu. So we were in, seeing COVID, but we were not seeing yeah. RSV or yeah. flu in the same way. Or is you know is COVID you know COVID just sort of out competing mm-hmm. all of these other things somehow? I don't know. I mean, there that there is a theory on that as well. That kind of COVID is out competing yeah. other respiratory pathogens and, and related to the respiratory microbiome and kind of competition for kind of gaining hold and immunologic response. And I don't know so much about that theory, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure either. I think Mm -hmm. it's a good question. You know, RSV in adults. I mean, I think we see a lot of COVID in adults and, and perhaps we do a lot less testing in, in very young kids, like, like those in this study, Uh, RSV in adults is probably less of a concern than COVID is in adults. And I Mm -hmm. think so probably potentially that's part of it is we're doing a lot of testing for COVID in adults when we're not really doing a ton of testing for RSV in adults, I would think during these time periods. I I, I don't know. I don't know. But But you would think we would be do We would certainly be doing COVID testing for kids during this time period if they were coming down with respiratory illness because you want to differentiate it from RSV or influenza. But there might have been more. I think you're right, though, with the age distribution that COVID was affecting older people who were maybe more likely to be just under surveillance for COVID in general to go to work or whatever it was. I see your point. And COVID was much less severe in kids. Yeah. So if we look at the age distribution of of COVID during this time, there probably Mm -hmm. were not a lot of kids getting infected with COVID in the early parts of the pandemic either. It's a good point. Yep. I hadn't really thought of that. I do think like with some of these new variants for COVID, I do think the transmissibility is probably higher for COVID. Mm-hmm. I would think. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't like gone deep and, and compared, but but I do think potentially that could be another reason. Yep. Can so, I ask? Oh, yeah, I, had no, a question, no. I had a question about immunological debt or the, the the debt theory. If you think about RSV in very young children, if very young age is a risk factor for severity. Is it bad? Like, is it bad from a health perspective to have your RSV infection delayed by a year or two? If you were going to get RSV when you're six months oh. and instead you get it when you're two and a half, that seems better. It's, right? Yeah. So that's, that, that's I, think, I think that's actually right. I think the, because obviously you had more time for your immune system to mature. Right. I think the issue is more, it's those, those really young kids are the ones who are more likely to end up in the hospital right, right. anyway. And so and you're um, taking one birth cohort and protecting them till they're old enough to, to be sheltered from it. But you're taking the next 
birth cohort and you're bombarding them with RSV. Because it's everywhere. Cause the older kids have it too. Yeah. I see. So you're just, in, you're like doubling or tripling yeah. their exposure. Cause yeah. like, I mean, I know for my son's class, the whole class was out with RSV in the last wow. two months. And the whole I know, class. I know a number of, yeah. Yeah. Too. Yeah. of people right. who've had kids who've been hospitalized. And these are older kids. Oh, these are like yeah. almost three-year-olds. Yeah, and so, absolutely. so I see. So the idea is you're just in increasing in a given school environment, the number of kids who are infectious with RSV, yeah. which then increases the risk to these very little ones. I think that's right. I mean, although I, you know, if, when I look at these numbers, I mean, if you look at the hospitalization numbers there, it does appear to me that there is more hospitalization for RSV overall in the, you know, the very last year. So the year when everything's starting to get back to normal, if you were to tally that all up, it looks to me like the, the total is probably larger, but it's spaced out over yeah. a much longer time period such that you might think, you know, maybe this actually in some ways like hospitals could handle this better. Although everything we're hearing for is hospitals are being overwhelmed with yeah. RSV. So I don't, I don't have any reason to say that's true. I just, you know, it's what I, when I look at this data, it's what I think about. I guess I have another question. Yep. So right now we're seeing this big surge in the U S again, wouldn't that go against this immunological, uh, you know, argument? Cause, cause we, we saw a big surge before about a year ago and that the argument was there's an immunological debt because we all went in lockdown or we, we had restrictions. Now we're going on a year again and we haven't had those restrictions. The, you know, theoretically in this argument, we wouldn't have this immunological debt from those restrictions. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I guess like looking at this going forward is going to be interesting for actually understanding what exactly is going on. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you make a good point. I think it would probably depend on how big the debt was. If yeah. That's something one could actually say, because I mean, there was n almost no RSV during that, that yeah. year. And so if, you know, 30% of the population, 50% of the population, whatever it is would normally get infected in a year. And now you've just got this whole cohort of kids who never got infected plus a new birth cohort who are all at risk, you know, then you start, you know, now you've got a lot of people who are at risk. They get infected, the numbers go up, but there's still a lot of them who even during that really bad year don't get infected. I, you know, it, it potentially yeah. could lead to another year, but I, I tend to think you're right. I mean, I tend to think you would see a reduction if it was an issue of, just, just reduced overall immunity. And kids also can get RSV more than once, as yeah. I know personally, because my son got it again oh, man. Um, within a year of getting it the first time, much less severe the second time. But, you know, he was tested again. And so he probably wouldn't have been, I probably wouldn't have taken gotcha. him to the doctor if yeah. I wasn't, you know, if he hadn't had it before and he'd been so ill. So the kids are getting tested a second time for it and they're discovering it. Oh, you got it, you know, 10 months later, you have it again. And that's going into these counts also. But no, RSV is a really scary disease. Yeah, we need, yeah. We need it's a really an RSV scary vaccine. Disease. I, yeah, I've never seen my kids as sick as my son. Yeah, I think there's a vaccine. I think Pfizer, but uh, don't quote me on it, is doing like a one in mothers. I think an RSV vaccine in mothers. It's in like development, but I don't think it's out there yet um, for for people to use. Yeah, I don't. I don't know the story, but I know that they've they've been trying for a while oh, really? because RSV has been, you know, I mean, after once they tackled strep pneumo and, and, and haemophilus influenza, that was sort of the next big, well, those are, those are, they're not the same, but you know, a, a, a viral pathogen that was causing a lot of severe illness in young kids. And I don't, I don't think they had had much success up until now, but maybe, maybe there's something. Yeah. Coming. I don't know. Yeah. I, I read something. Yep. I mean, it would have been interesting to see, would have been very different data, but interesting to see RSV, rates in 
mothers also, mm-hmm. you know, to, to go at this idea that you were talking about earlier is, you know, especially for the under one year old age group, our mothers transferring antibodies, you know, but if maternal RSV rates are also way down, then it would support this, this idea. I suspect we're going to see, we're going to see a lot more published research on RSV over the coming, you know, three to six months. So maybe stay tuned. Any, any last points anyone wants to raise on this study before we move on? I had one last point. I feel like I always have a last point, but my, (laughs) um, you know, I think the authors here were trying to make the point about time trends and interventions about RSV, not a medical or biological argument about the impact of COVID. But I think that's an interesting question too. Is RSV more likely to be severe if someone has had a recent COVID infection? And I was wondering reading this, how you could look at that ecologically almost where you could look at, you could kind of pair this data on RSV with those, Matt, you were talking about the cycles of COVID and do they follow one another? You know, is does COVID peak and then RSV? Like, is there something mm-hmm. about COVID mm-hmm. infection that could predispose someone to greater severity in RSV? Or or is it is it just the effect of kind of the COVID interventions? And so the study didn't go there in any way, which is totally fine. But it did make me think about that kind of the biological question. Yeah, I had the exact, I had a very similar thought, especially because so many you know, a high proportion of children have had COVID at this point in, in, in the UK, I'm sure. And here also. So I, I wonder, this is a different cohort of, of kids, birth cohort of kids um, that has had COVID compared to 2014 cohort, for example. So I'm curious, uh, it'd be tough to test as you were saying, but it, yeah, it's interesting. If you could superimpose the, the, yeah. the time patterns, that was, that was, that was, yeah. an, that was an interest <laughs> I'd had was, could you see the similar time trends for COVID overlaid? With the RSV patterns. Yeah. yeah. They must have that data. Yeah. Someone I'm sure they do. Data. I'm sure it's out there. Well, we'll, we'll uh, anyone who's listening, if you could do that study <laughs> and submit it to us, we will be happy to review it. All right, let's move on to our second segment. And this is also a piece that that Leo passed on to us. And it was it was a article in Lancet Global Health entitled Robustness of Evidence Reported in Preprints During Peer Review by Lindsay Nelson and Colleagues. And the idea of this was that, you know, many people have expressed concern about preprints over the course of the pandemic, right? The preprints are these servers where you can deposit a research study before it's been peer reviewed so that now people have access to it, can critique it, can comment on it. And, you know, hopefully that jumpstarts the process of, of peer review. And then eventually, hopefully your study goes for peer review and gets published in a journal. It's better off for having been out there early. But as we all know, during the pandemic, there's been so much interest in what's going on in COVID and everybody wants to be able to report on the newest and most up-to-date research that the media has been picking up preprints. Again, often with you know, clear indication that these are preprints, they have not yet been peer reviewed. On the other hand, if you're reporting on it, it kind of suggests that you know, we, we, we probably think it's good research because otherwise we wouldn't be reporting on it. And so it gave it that kind of stamp of these are, you know, this is information worth reporting on to, to the public. So there's been concern. And this article took a look at one specific aspect of the concern, which is the concern that preprints are by definition before peer review has happened. And so that means if your article goes through the peer review process, it may, in fact, during the process of peer review, get comments back that cause the authors to change their analysis and their analytic approach such that the results are actually different. 
And therefore, maybe the information that we're getting from preprints is unreliable. And so what they did was they went and collected a whole bunch of these preprints, followed the ones through that got to the point of publication, and compared the estimates that we are finding for, you know, and these, these could be about anything, anything, you know, COVID related, whether the estimates in the preprints differed from the published version. And long story short, what they basically found was they didn't differ very much. I mean, they, you know, there's probably some mild change, but nothing, certainly the trend is a pretty strong correlation between the estimates in the preprint and the estimates in the published versions. So, my question to you both is, does this mean we don't have to worry about the quality of preprints and we can just report anything that's in a preprint in the media? No, I don't think so. Okay. That's a big <laughs> Discussion <question>. over. <laughs> All right. Third segment. <laughs> why, no, no. why not? Well, I, I think this is, uh, you sort of mentioned this is maybe one aspect of preprints, but I feel like it's it's not a selection bias, but it's sort of you're, you're selecting preprints that were published and had a peer review. You're, you're, you're not. I think it's a hundred percent selection yeah, bias. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, sorry, I don't mean to imply, well, I'm agreeing with you hundred percent. I'm not saying well, what's published is a hundred percent selection. I bias. mean, it's not a selection bias for what they are want to, for their research question, which is does peer review change? Well, looking at right? the well, published literature that I well, think they've, like, they've no, restricted it is to the public. Because we can only look literature. at, yeah. Uh, well, right. as Jess well, says, uh, well, only those things different, that got published. Yeah, exactly. So you're basically ignoring everything that did not get published, which is a huge area of concern about preprint servers. Yeah. 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 So I think for one aspect of preprint servers, one concern, this is important information. I think that peer review, I, I, I mean, to some extent, I felt like hundred preprints, maybe they could have done more um, than a hundred. Yeah. But, sorry. I, di I didn't give the number. It was a hundred yeah. that they reviewed. Yeah. I, I felt like they could have done more preprints than that, but anyways, but I, I'm actually, probably more concerned with the preprints that are not published. And I think that is the media taking up those articles and saying those are, you know, this is the the, the next scientific truth or, or whatever. And, and that, that's a bit what I'm more concerned about than, than necessarily peer review. Jess, what yeah, was your, <laughs> what was your reaction? To this one? I had some interesting thoughts on this one. I mean, I couldn't tell in reading this article if the issue you know, I, I, I think it had a lot to, it has a lot to do with quality of peer review also. Like when you're asked to peer Absolutely. review a paper, yeah. do you take the data and rerun the analyses yeah, to the extent point. where yep. you would say, oh, your point estimate is off and, and then you have to go back and change it. Most likely if someone does that, if you take the data, I mean, I don't think most of us don't actually rerun the data and that's what they were looking at here was the estimates and the change in the point estimates and the confidence intervals. But if you were to do that and you're like, wow, you found a positive association, but I got a negative association, you'd probably reject the paper. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so th that, and that was missing from this conversation was just the limits of peer review. And I think especially during yeah. COVID where all of us were so stretched for time, even people who may have under other circumstances, taking the data and rerun the analysis just were, were stretched. And so a lot of that was not happening. Yeah. I think it goes beyond that. I mean, I agree with you hundred percent, but I think it goes beyond that because I don't, I, I, I don't, when I get asked to peer review, actually look at the data. I mean, it's rare. The data are actually available, but even when they are, I don't have the time to yeah. go through and that's, you know, maybe I would do it if it was something incredibly high profile and, and, you know, like something with COVID maybe, but even then probably not. But so, uh, what to me, how many times, I guess I would ask you both, how many times have you submitted an article for review 
that eventually got published that you actually went back and completely redid your analysis. Like you made made some some small tweaks to things. They might say, you know, you didn't adjust for this and you had right. it. So, and and the end result of that is usually, well, the reason we didn't include it is because we did and it didn't make any difference. And we so then we just update the paper to say this is what happened or something along those lines. Often the problems are things that you actually can't actually go back and and fix because if you did you would have you, you you would have done it yourself and so then it becomes a question of then the the reviewers can either say okay this is bad enough that I would recommend rejecting it or they can say and this I think is what happens most often is you need to you know step back and how you interpret your results you need to talk about this more in the limitations if we think it's strong enough that it can go forward but it's still a problem so to me that's where i think most of the changes end up happening is discussions and and limitations and so i'm not really very surprised that estimates are not changing very much and i don't think that means it's a strong endorsement of the preprints i think that's true i'm not yeah. sure i've ever gone back and kind of fundamentally changed the data analysis. I've, you know, reviewers sometimes will ask for an additional analysis. So can you look at this yep, or can you look at this and, you'll, and you and you can add that in, but right. And I'm, I mean, I'm looking, I'm thinking about my papers too. I don't know if I've ever really had a reviewer who said, and we typically submit the data along with the article for review. I don't think I've ever had someone who's like, I reran all your analyses <laughs> and I had a question about this approach. I mean, typically I think as professionals, there kind of is the deference that your team is coming up with the best approach to look at the data that you have and reviewers come at it from that perspective that you might have an idea, but you're looking at this for the first time. And this team has ostensibly been, you know, thinking about this for the last year or more or whatever it is. And there is a biostatistician on the team and there's, you know, other people who are lending expertise and they know the data set and the approach better than you do. But that's, that's not always the way to think about it. But I think there is sometimes a good amount of deference towards the statistical approach among reviewers. I think so too, yeah. I think that may be true. I, I would say though, I, I don't know that I always uh, uh, go into it with deference so much as if if I've identified something that I think they really, you needed to adjust for here. Yeah, It's, it's incredibly unlikely that they had that data and didn't just chose not to adjust for it, right? It's typically... They didn't have it. They didn't, for whatever reason, couldn't collect it. And so I'm not, you know, my issue isn't so much with what they did with what they had. It's what they didn't have. And that's not a problem that can be solved. And so then you have to either say, no, this is bad enough that I'm going to reject it. Or you need to do some kind of additional, you know, uh, bias analysis or something like that to be able to convince me that it's worthwhile. Or we're just going to say, no, reject. And so I, I don't, you know, this... When I originally saw the title of this paper, I was excited. I thought we were going to get something that was really going to, you know, convince me one way or the other. And in the end, I'm convinced with what they did. I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm totally convinced. I just, I don't know that that's the most relevant question. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with both of you. I think I've never, I'm trying to think, maybe once I've had to re, redo a, a, a main analysis for a paper like I misinterpreted some algorithm or something and I had to redo that algorithm, but, but, but extremely uncommonly and, yep. and, and definitely never had the time to look into data that's submitted or anything. And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm in agreement. This, this didn't really move me at all in terms it's of it's very hard to do. I mean, I think it's yeah. very difficult often to, to find the reviewer 
who really could yeah. replicate or reproduce the analysis that a group of authors did. And people are typically chosen re for review because they have some content area expertise, yeah. not because they have that, like you really know how to run the GLMs of this particular yeah. flavor. And, and so, so it's often just a limitation of the system, unless we're having, you know, unless you say you have to have a PhD level biostatistician review every paper. Shouldn't the right. journal, if, if we all agree that this, this is important, that, that data should actually be checked, right? Because there are mistakes that get made in, in, in data processing, data analysis. Definitely. If we believe, shouldn't that be the journal's responsibility? I mean, the journal is getting the content for free. They're getting the peer review for free. And they are making tons of money that they could use to hire somebody whose job it was to check this stuff. So I often right. feel like if the data were available to me, I wouldn't have the time to actually right. review it. And I would feel bad about that. But I actually don't think that should be my job. Yeah, that should have been yeah. done before it ever comes to me if we all agree that that is something that we value. Yeah, we shouldn't be putting more on reviewers. I feel like that is not the route here of success. Because <laughs> I feel like, yeah, reviewers, just reviewing, I think, is a lot of work in itself without having to get into a data set. <laughs> and we're all busy. Yeah, I mean, what would that look like, Matt? I guess a journal would have to hire two data or three data. I mean, depending on how many articles they, they publish a year, Yeah, two or three data analysts to rerun. I mean, I think it's a great idea. I, I think it's a really good idea. I actually don't, the amount of money these journals are making, I don't think this would like bankrupt anybody. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's the publisher. I mean, the, the, so journals are, are, you know, they have an editorial board, but the the board itself. I mean, they're not the ones making all the money. It's the it's the publisher who is making all the money. So they are the ones I think should be putting forward money for resources. And you could argue, and you could make an argument that they should be paying for peer review as well, or paying for definitely, the definitely. the content. They should be rather than charging me, hundred percent, you know, yeah. a, a huge amount of money. They should be you know paying me. But then then their business model really sort of probably falls flat. And so I, I can't see that happening until universities actually make the push to say we're not gonna we're not gonna buy subscriptions to these journals until there are serious changes. Made. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the issue is there's no policing of journals or publishers as part of this process. I think right for reviewing for study quality. I mean, I think all this is decided by the publisher, right? In a sense, could couldn't couldn't universities get together? Yeah, and just say we're gonna like either fix this or we're just going to create our own in-house journals. And, you know, obviously to start off with, nobody's going to want to publish in the, you know, the BU Journal of Medicine when there's the New England Journal of Medicine. But over time, if the BU Journal of Medicine, you know, could get some quality, you know, quality studies and could demonstrate that the model is, is much better for people financially, I mean, couldn't they... Couldn't they do something to like unionize? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or come from the funders or have it come from the funders. If NIH, yeah. And there have been, right? right? There have been a That's number of initiatives. Right. Of I mean, I think that almost might be more effective where if it came from NIH and said, you know, the costs for open access has gone up a lot during the pandemic. And for junior people, that's rough because it's either coming out of your Definitely. grants or coming out of your discretionary accounts. And, you know, I think, I think NIH could also play a role in saying, you know, this data needs to be 
published that, you know, the, the, the studies need to be open access as soon as they're published and we're not paying for it. So, so there so, have been, right. there have been a number of funders that have been pushed. Yeah. And I think NIH, if my understanding correct is coming out with something mm. soon on this, I don't remember the specifics okay. of what exactly it's going to look like. Because then that would like. push the universities to say, well, then it falls to the universities. And then I think they would leverage the publishers. But, but I think yeah. all of uh, I mean, all of the funding uh, funders for this kind of stuff is mostly around open access, right? Yep. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. around study quality or study reviewing, you know, I, I well, right. maybe there's something out there and I haven't heard it, but I think, I, I do think that's a potential route if, if funders would, would push for that also. I would um, agree. Yep, yeah, I would agree. All right. We gotta, we gotta move on. So let's get to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, which needs no introduction. Jess, you want to, you want to go first? Sure. This was one that caught my interest. Um, so I'm reporting from an abstract that was presented at the 75th annual meeting of the Division of Fluid Dynamics at the American Physical Society. Oh, so uh, Leo and I were at that meeting. Of course, so, of yeah. course. I'm uh, sure. Great I'm sure. Love, love that meeting. <laughs> oral presentation at Things this one. Things just moved right, right along. <laughs> so this is a, a big physics meeting. It just ended earlier this week. It was in Indiana, the convention center. And the abstract was entitled Splash Free Your Journals inspired by Nautilus shells and dogs. And so, <laughs> so talk, you know, wow. I, I was saying I'm the mom of two boys and I, I, I do spend a good amount of time wiping pee off the seat, pee off the floor <laughs> as they, you know, these are little, little kids. And, you know, we've talked in this podcast, in this section about research that's not as useful mm -hmm. as other things or where, you know, people spend a lot of money and time kind of looking at something that's pretty obvious. If you know about, we talked about parrots for, yep. you know, a few episodes ago. What these authors did, and they were at the University of Waterloo, they developed a series of different shapes for urinals to try to reduce splash because they said the current model for a urinal is really poorly engineered to reduce splash. It's only one height. And so you, you there's, you know, and that leads to oh. like a lot of urine contamination and a lot of germs in public bathrooms. And so they tested all of these different models. And what was kind of cool was that they were looking at, you know, they were looking at, at dogs, you know, they were kind of looking at different sorts of models for Wait, but dogs don't, dogs don't use urinals. <laughs> no, but they were looking at a splash of dog urine oh, and trying to identify the splash patterns so that they could engineer something to contain the splash. splash. Yeah. And, you know, this was like the most practical research I think I've read in a really, really long time. All right. And it was a presentation at this meeting, the Division of Fluid Dynamics. And so what anyway, was the winner? The winner, they, I don't even know if there was a winner. But they, they, they showcase, I have a picture here, which I know our listeners can't see, but they showcase five different shapes. Wow. Some are long and thin. Most of them are a lot lower than the traditional urinal and have some sort of covered bottom. <laughs> you can't see the hand gestures, but they are you fantastic. You can't see the hand gestures, but... Um, so is the target the, population... Target. Uh, what is the target population for this for dynamics study? <laughs> I think they had made a comment that it said the practice of marking territory with urine is repulsive <laughs> to most people, but ironically about half of the world's population 
in quotes, males, inadvertently <laughs> mark bathrooms, floors, and themselves through unintentional urinal Oh, males. So we're the target. I think you're the target population here. 50% of the population. I have long said that the floors <laughs> of men's bathrooms are a public health emergency. <laughs> so well, but see, that's good working, stuff. You know, yeah, that's very good. For that. Urinals. Physics. All right. Good. Yeah, okay. I want to yeah. see that peer review published. <laughs> yeah, I want to see that too. Do you think it's going to get changed? Yeah, I just want to see how Fast track that to publication, <laughs> please. Just get that one moving. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Leo, what do you got? So I have one. It's a little bit old. So I'm obsessed with dogs. Um, dogs, I, dogs peeing? No, not dogs peeing. I'm although bad, yeah. now I have more interest in that. So it's great. But just to go with this theme with dogs more, I read this article that so I actually don't have a dog, but I've been wanting a dog for forever. Okay. And so I'm like one of those people that's like looking for all the dogs. People are walking and it's like, great. But there was this scientist, Georgia Tech, I think, where they created basically like a doggy vest that can talk, <laughs> basically, um, basically can talk based on some signals that the dog makes. I think it's trained, you know, I think the original intent was for like assistance dogs. Like they, they help to help communication, yeah. that kind of thing. But I think they're trying to maybe advance that a little bit further into more words and more gestures. So I was really excited when I read this because I'm obsessed wait, with wait, dogs. Wait, 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 so wait, wait, I want to have a whole like conversation. Translates the dog sounds and movements into speech. No, I think it can like, there's like a, a certain levers where it can like hit it oh. and well, then the dog commute, can the dog, make the yeah. vest talk. Exactly. Yeah. And so wow. it, it can, so I, nice. I don't know how advanced this is. I don't think this is like we're having full conversations here, but I think <laughs> like a few like words where you can actually, you can actually have a little bit of communication, which is kind of like my dream world. It's so able to talk to dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I'd much world. rather talk Got to it. dogs than humans. Sorry. Sorry. I love talking to both oh, of you. Most love of our listeners are dogs. So it's fine. <laughs> oh, it's great. That's great. Well, is I, I didn't even know that. So now I'm, now I'm nervous. Now I'm nervous. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so, so there I have seen on, my daughter has shown me on TikTok or wherever these videos <laughs> of, uh, it's like a pad on the uh -huh. ground with buttons yeah. and the dogs can step on the buttons to, so like one will say, you know, like give me a treat or, you know, yeah. uh, pet me or those. So is it's kind of like that. It's kind of like idea? that. They have like side sensors where the dog can like trigger the sensor with like a bite or a nudge or something. And then, and then they can, they can communicate in that way. But, and, and I think they're like, I think they're still at like beta phase. I don't think this is like, I'm not seeing a bunch of dogs talking in beta the street male or phase? anything. No, <laughs> not seeing like dogs talking everywhere. And, but, but I do think, I do think this is maybe very promising research that I'm going to continue to uh, continue follow. follow. Okay. It's interesting because yeah. it begs the question of do the dogs is it just like the Pavlovian response that like if they nudge their shoulder, you're going to take them out? Or is it that they have an understanding of the language that they, they there's a middle step, like they nudge the shoulder and it goes, take me out. <laughs> or is it just, you know, is it the sound and the language or is it the movement that they start to identify with whatever the, their owner is so doing? So dogs understand their own names, right? Uh -huh. So they can, they can they clearly. like 50 words, I think, right? Yeah. Or, so like, yeah. I think they can, mm -hmm. I think they can understand and therefore they could, if they can learn, this sound is equated to, you know, being taken outside or whatever it is, then I think they could learn that the sound. Yeah. Yeah. I cool. mean, I think with training, with training, I think they could learn at least some words 
And so I don't know. I think this is something okay. in the future. We'll, well, maybe it would reduce barking, right? Because oh, I think right. people could, there could really be a market for that. If you can teach your dog yeah. how to make some kind of vocalization to keep them from barking, yeah. then that would probably I mean, be a they benefit. need one of these for babies too. So I have right? a six month old. And like, why just babies? I want one. <laughs> so that but, I don't have to talk but, to people. I can talk. just say. Just talk. push a button on your face. No, but I'd rather just push a button that said, feed me. Uh, <laughs> oh I got to talk. Uh, no, no, no. We can't no? go that direction. So I, we need one for babies too. Because like half of my waking time is like working. And the other half is like, what is my baby thinking of right now? Mm-hmm. Like, tell please you. tell mm-hmm. me so you can, we can like move on here a yep. little bit. Yep. And so dogs and babies, that's what we need. Dogs and babies. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, I have a very short one and I will say this is completely stolen from the NPR's wait, wait, don't tell me, but I heard this story and I had to go look it up. And now I just wanted to share it with you all. It's a, a word of, of warning from the Payson Police Department. This is Payson, Arizona. And they put a posting on their Facebook site to warn people about a potential problem that they were concerned about. So I'm just going to read to you their Facebook posting. It says, the Payson Police Department would like to remind the public that wildlife should remain wild. It is illegal to possess, transport, buy, or sell wildlife unless expressly permitted by Arizona's blah, blah, blah. Early this morning, officers conducted a traffic stop and upon approaching the vehicle discovered a young owl next to the driver. The investigation revealed the owl just had been purchased by the driver at a local gas station. The driver purchased the owl from a motorist who had found it along the roadway. Okay, the next paragraph, the most important here. Payson Police Department would also like to take this opportunity to encourage the public not to use methamphetamine, <laughs> or you too may find yourself illegally purchasing a wild uh, owl for $100 uh, in the middle of the night from strangers <laughs> at a local gas station. Oh, man. <laughs> really important public service announcement that I think we all need to be reminded about. That's great. Right. Don't take methamphetamines and then buy an owl, an owl in the from gas a stranger station. at a gas station mm. in the middle There's of the night. There's not too much to say to that. No. Yeah. Right? I, mean, I feel like they could just do the methamphetamine message and not necessarily buying you know, animals message, but yeah. It is I feel an like- interesting <laughs> twist though on the typical meth message. No, Don't do t- meth. But, but you all right. remember the first time your parents told you not to take methamphetamines <laughs> and then buy of course, of course. wildlife from a gas station in the middle of the night. I, yeah. I, I, I have very clear memories of that. So, you know. It sticks, it sticks. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at PopHealthyX. I'm not going to give out all our Twitters anymore, Leo, unless you got one. You want to you want to give us your Twitter? Yeah. I mean, I don't actually know my Twitter. Well, there you go. I'm not going to give them out anymore <laughs> because After Twitter I'm is... Okay. Okay. I got one. I got it. Okay. Uh, L-E-O-M-A-R-T-I under dash F-E-T-B. There you go. You got one? Have you, I do. Have you, it's have just you? at Jessica Liebler. Okay. And I'm at Prof. Matt Fox. But I think Twitter is in the midst of self-imploding. So I don't think we need it anymore, right? Uh, but you can always find us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. And we also want to thank Mark Takachi for editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode.